0: Please open your Bibles to 1st Timothy, chapter 3, verse 8. Imagine for a moment that you were transported through time with the time machine of your own inventing back to the year 1800. And let's say, just for the sake of argument, you ignored every warning that you have ever found in any time travel novel or movie that you have ever seen and you decided to randomly select one unsuspecting citizen and bring them back with you to the year 2021. Once that person got over the shock of all of the things that we have that they did not, things like cell phones and microwaves and modern cars, that person would then begin to realize a variety of shocking cultural changes to our society. That person would probably be disturbed by the clothing that people choose to wear now and find acceptable. They would most likely be annoyed by most of what we consider music, and they would probably not understand or value anything that we call modern art. And rightfully so, let's be honest. But most likely, one of the most notable changes that somebody would perceive is the operation of how women function in modern society. The shift in societal societal norms in this area is massive. It cannot be understated. Some of those changes are good, some of those changes are bad. But as with all cultural changes, the church has a responsibility, we are called to find the right way to honor God and to follow scripture in the midst of our culture. So today what we're going to do is we are going to hear the second part of a three-part examination of the role of deacon. Now, you already heard today that we are looking forward in the near future from going from zero deacons to four deacons, and hopefully in the spring that number will double to eight deacons. However, you may have noticed that all of the people that were nominated are men, and there is a reason for that. Simply put, I do not believe that it is biblical for women to serve as deacons. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. However, our focal verse is going to land primarily on verse 11. In particular, listen now as I read for you from God's holy word this passage concerning deacons, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience." And let them be also tested first, and then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." Most of what we read there, we are going to focus upon next Sunday. For today, we are primarily considering the one criteria, gender. Let's now ask the Lord for his blessing and clarity from his word. Father God, as we come before you today considering this one topic, we pray, Lord, that you would please help us to know rightly from the scripture what your word is teaching us this morning. And God, I pray that just as we sang moments ago, Our hearts would cry out, not my will, but yours be done. Father God, I ask that in all of these things that any question that arises would be answered and that any objection would be answered and that that would be done in a sense of great grace and humility. Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom as I communicate and that you would allow me to do so with conviction but compassion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right up front, it's really important that we set up a couple of ground rules as we seek to answer the question of whether or not women should serve as deacons. The first rule is that we have to have a scriptural foundation. Please know that I am not here to present you with my personal preferences. Rather, it is my responsibility right now to present to you the scripture as I understand it. So I will not insinuate or speculate or advocate for any position on this issue that I cannot clearly defend From Scripture. Secondly, we need to consider our goals this morning. Please know that my goal today as the preacher and my goal as the pastor of this church is not to become popular or to win friends. If that was my intention, I should not be a pastor, and I would not touch this topic with a 10 foot pole if that was my desire. Several years ago, I was speaking with a pastor of what I would consider to be a very unhealthy church here on Long Island. And he said something to the extent of, our church has been around now for about 15 years and we're going to have to make some decisions soon about whether or not our church is okay with women in leadership. And he went on to explain that he doesn't really think it's that big of a deal, so he's never taught on it, he's never preached on it, he's never broached the subject with very many people in his church about it, which is why he had gone that long with the church operating in Confusion we as a church need to know how to function biblically. Sometimes that means that I will be called on to preach about uncomfortable truths. And what I'm preaching this morning is just about as countercultural and unpopular as things get in our society. My goal this morning is to show you how God has given particular criteria for the operation of His church. And my goal is that He would be honored in this church. And my goal is that Jesus Christ would get all of the glory. So, Whether or not you and I disagree or agree on the question of the gender of deacons, we should agree on the goal, which is to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. The third ground rule that we need to consider is how to respond to offense. Some people get offended by this topic regardless of what I will say. Some people are going to be offended simply because I mentioned that there's a distinction between men and women, which is unquestionable according to Scripture. There might be people who are already offended right now, and in our culture, we have come to a strange place. We have come to a a position now in America that if somebody tells you that you have offended them, then the thing we are supposed to do as the offender is to somehow redo or repair or recant whatever was offending that person. But that is not how we are called to function according to Scripture. It is not my desire to offend you, and I never want to be offensive to you, but I'm totally fine if God offends you. So I simply ask those who are already feeling the tension of this topic to take a deep breath, and let's consider the arguments that we're going to see here from Scripture, and let's make plans to speak if there's any thought or question or concern that troubles you. Don't become bitter in the heart. Simply find a way to discuss these things with an open Bible. If you find yourself opposed to the idea that it's being presented today that men only should be deacons, then what is probably going to happen or may have already begun happening in your heart is to begin to develop and formulate arguments in your heart and in your mind as to why we should have female deacons, and that is totally fine. And I would actually welcome the opportunity to discuss your thoughts on that issue. However, as you do that... When processing and mulling these things over in your mind, you need to avoid three pitfalls that can easily shift you away from the Scripture and into either personal preference or faulty logic. These things have been operating within many churches for generations and can produce great deals of problems, not only in this area of theology, but all areas of theology. So here's some things to guard against. First, never make an argument from tradition. Traditions are not bad. In fact, I think traditions are great. I think it's good for a church to develop a regular practice of worship that helps people anticipate what is coming. That can be very helpful, like knowing that, for example, sometime in December, we are going to sing the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. My children love that song. They sing it in July, but we as a church will gather and we will sing that sometime between December 1st and December 25th. We also know that on Wednesday nights, we are going to start again, starting the first Wednesday in June of the next summer, we're going to gather weekly to worship the Lord here on Wednesday evenings. There are many other things that we have as cycles in the church, and these are good things. Traditions are good things. But we do not build our theology around our tradition. We build our theology from Scripture alone. We have always done it this way simply is not an argument that finds any grounding within the operations of the church. Secondly, do not make arguments regarding fairness. There's a saying that uh, is very common, my house, my rules, right? When you go to people's homes, sometimes that person will ask you to remove their shoes at their house. Other homes, they will ask you to remove your Yankees paraphernalia, Vicky Rush called, right? The church is not your house and the church is not my house. The church is God's house. And by that I'm not referencing the building, I'm not referencing the property, I'm speaking specifically about the fact that God calls his people, the gathered people of God, the ecclesia, he calls that his building, his church, his construction project, the institution of the church is his house, and he is the one who gets to make all of the rules for the way the church functions. And he has been very plain about the rules for both of the offices of the church, elders and deacons. For simplicity's sake, let me remind you that God is very clear that only men should serve as pastors or preachers. We see that in the second chapter of 1 Timothy, and we see that that is much more clearly presented to us than it is about deacons. That's why I borrow from that argument right now, because he simply says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority in the church. When you see that God has this prohibition against these things, he goes all the way back to Adam and Eve to make his reason. The two reasons given is that first God made man before he made women and that God has, uh, or because Eve has sinned before Adam sinned. So both by order of creation and by order of the fall, that is the cause for which we have this position in the church. And God has set this unique role over men and women in the kingdom for those reasons and those reasons have not and cannot be changed. The masculine requirement for eldership is easy to see in Scripture. And when we consider this, a lot of times people will respond by saying, either with their heart or with their mind, that just isn't fair. And I understand that feeling. If you've ever felt like something was unfair, you know that that is a massive struggle in the heart, and it is your desire to find a way for what you consider to be fairness or justice. But if you begin to make the argument of fairness, what you are actually doing is telling God that you believe the way he organized, whether you're talking about male-female relations in the family or in the church, you are saying, God, I do not believe you have organized things correctly. You are saying that you, not he, should determine the function, limits, and operations of the officers of his kingdom. So to argue that it is unfair is actually to accuse God himself of being unfair and that is a dangerous place to stand. Third, please keep in mind the exact scope of our study today. And be very careful to hear me not hear me saying what I am not saying. Uh, there is a logical fallacy known as ignoratio elenchi. Has anyone ever heard of this? If you studied logic, this is a thing that people speak about. Normally in English, we just use a simplified term, you're missing the point. That's what that means, you are missing the point. Please don't hear me saying that women should not serve in church in any way because that's absolutely not true or that women should not work outside their home or that women should not vote or be doctors or be the president of the United States because I believe that women can do and could do and maybe even should do all of these things and I am thankful that we live in a society where my daughter has those freedoms. So please don't spend any mental energy this morning thinking about those things. Don't think about a different point. We have one simple question in front of us this morning, which is, does God teach in his word that women should serve as deacons or not? So, now that we've got a good footing to move forward, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to present to you arguments that people make from the Scripture for the purpose of having female deacons because all of the things that I mentioned before are extra biblical arguments arguments of tradition arguments of fairness etc those arguments are not biblical arguments they are not grounded in Scripture but I do want to show you how there are some people who are convinced based upon their interpretation of the Bible that this is a role that women should hold in the church and that this is something that they should be carrying out on a consistent faithful basis Now allow me to say that I believe in all of my heart that these people come to this perspective honestly and they come to it humbly and that they have studied these things in the word. And I do believe with all my heart that on their part there is a desire to honor God and to put in practice a faithful diaconate. And I also happen to believe with all of my heart that they are wrong on this issue. Some of my best friends who are pastors hold the view that we should have female deacons. And I hold nothing against them. Absolutely not. They're still my friends. And it is by no means something we should have division between us because of. However, right now, we are at a pivotal moment in the life of this church where we have to make a determination about how we are going to operate moving forward. There are two texts in the Bible that proponents for female deacons use to defend their position. I'm going to show you both of these verses and explain to you the position in a way that I think they would agree is accurate, and then I will explain why I believe that their position is incorrect. First, in our text today that we have already considered, proponents of female deacons would argue that the translation into English is somewhat misleading and should be understood slightly differently. They would say, verse 11, which says their wives likewise must be dignified, etc., etc. They would say that this is not quite how it should be rendered, If you're looking at that verse in your own copy of scriptures, you may see that there is a footnote in many versions of the Bible next to that word wives. And that footnote will take you down to the bottom of the page. I encourage you to learn how to use those footnotes well in your Bible. And that footnote will tell you that this could be rendered rather than wives, it could be rendered as women. That is because in Greek, the word that is used here could be translated either way, and it is translated and is used in the Bible in both ways. And so we cannot simply decide, we have to use context to show which might be appropriate for which occasion. So here's the argument based upon this linguistic note. Proponents of female deacons believe that this should be understood to say something like this. Just like the men who serve as deacons... Women who serve as deacons should likewise be dignified, not slanderers, etc. And let me share with you the one main reason, there are many, but the one main reason why I'm confident that this is not the proper interpretation of this text. Just consider the word likewise. When Paul begins to write about these women, he makes an important shift. The word in Greek for likewise is hosautos, and it indicates that one thing should be like another yet be distinct from another. Let me give you a few examples by seeing the two times that Paul has already used this word likewise, or hausotos, in the book of 1 Timothy. We consider 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Now notice how the word likewise is being used here. It is showing that there should be a similar heart of reverence. Likewise, you should operate with this heart in yourself. But now he is going to write about a different audience who should display that reverence in a different way. The word likewise here is a linguistic way to show the shift of attention from one group to another. First, he speaks of men. Likewise, women. Then we see this again in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. We already read this verse together today, but please look at what is happening in your Bibles. Verses 1 through 7 in chapter 3 are all about elders, or what he refers to here as overseers. Paul is defining the criteria for who are to be selected for eldership by highlighting their character and their gifting to teach. Then, when we read verse 8, it says deacons likewise, followed by a variety of character qualities. And now it is certainly not the case that we are to understand that these two categories of people, elders and deacons, are the same office. They are a distinct office. And the word likewise is being used to show you there is a transition from one To the other. Paul is showing that both offices require Christian character, but the two offices remain distinct. So, back now to verse 11. What is Paul distinguishing here? What two groups is he pointing out? Male deacons and female deacons? That's what proponents of a female diaconate would say. He would say he first speaks of deacons, and then he speaks of women who we should understand to be female deacons. Here's the reason that this cannot be the case. Because in verse 11, he does not say likewise, I'm sorry, in verse 8, he does not say likewise men must be dignified. He says likewise deacons must be dignified. Meaning that when Paul shifts, using the word likewise, he is now no longer speaking about deacons. He is speaking about a different category of people altogether. So whether the word should be translated as women or as wives does not matter because it should still category, uh, would still categorically mean that whoever they are, they are not deacons. They are categorically different. However, the way that uh, the way that then makes best linguistic and logical sense is that these women have a relationship to the men who are deacons, which is why every major Bible translation in the history of the world has always translated in whatever language they're using as wives, not just simply as women. Here's a second argument that is often given for proponents of female deacons. They argue that in Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, there is an example in the Bible of a female deacon. This is the number one argument that is used to explain why we should have them. Here's what it says in the book of Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. I commend, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cintrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Notice that word servant, a servant of the church. That word is the same word, diaconos, that we are speaking about today, the word deacon. And so those who argue for a female diaconate would say, the Bible clearly shows that there is a woman who has the title of deacon here in Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> Now, Romans 16 is basically a phone book for the church in Rome. It has 29 names of men and women that Paul writes about specifically. And for 15 of them, he describes their character or their relationship to their ministry. For example, later on in verse 7, we read of another woman named Mary. He says, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Notice there's a similarity there in terms of servanthood and hard work. But when verse 1 refers to Phoebe as a servant of the church, he uses that generic Greek word for servant, and there we see this idea of diakonos, this word of servanthood. Therefore, those who are proponents of it would say, this is not just saying that she serves, it is saying that she holds a title, that she holds an office. Now, let me explain why I do not believe this position to be true. I believe that Paul was here describing her character, not her position. Of the, other 29, of the other 28 names that are mentioned in this chapter, not one of them is spoken about by their titles. It, it seems as though many of these people were leaders in the church. It's likely that some of them were deacons or elders, but none of them are written about by their titles. But many of them are spoken about by their qualities or their work ethic. We see, for example, in verse 8, "'Greet Impilatus, my beloved in the Lord.'" Or like this verse in verse three, "Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus." So Paul does not seem to be focusing here at all on positions, but on relational aspects that he has to these people, and that they have, the wor- uh, have done work for the sake of the kingdom of God. But that's not a very good argument. If that's all I left you with, you should say, well, I'm scratching my head, that I get what you're saying, but I don't see that that is definitively true or proof. But I would like to go a little bit deeper here and consider more about this word deacon and how it's used in the Bible. This word deacon is given to us 29 times in the Scripture, and only three times in your Bible is it translated into the word deacon. And that is because it is incredibly clear that on most occasions it is not talking about an office, it is talking about the character of an individual. In other words, I agree with the historic position of the church that there are only three times that this word is meant to to speak to the office of deacon. Proponents of female deacons would be very close to that. They would say there are only four times this is speaking about the office of deacon, and they would include Phoebe on that list. Let's see some examples. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant, diakonos, be also. What is he saying there? Is he saying that only deacons will actually end up being with him? Clearly not. He's speaking about those who serve him. Paul regularly referred to himself as a diakonos. He also uses an, another word, which is often translated as bond servant or slave, but he uses the term diakonos for himself on many occasions, even though he never served in the office of deacon in the church. He is not speaking about the office that he is holding. He is speaking about a heart of service. One example of this can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? What are they? Diakonos. They are servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Clearly, this word is intended to have a broader meaning in Paul's writing. Galatians chapter 2, verse 17, likewise says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we, were t- uh, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin, a diakonos of sin? Now, clearly he is not saying that Jesus is a sinner, and clearly he is not saying that he holds an office. Certainly not, Paul writes. Is Christ the office holder of deacon? No. Obviously, that is not what's in view. So how do we know if Phoebe is displaying the character of a servant or holding the office of a deacon? One of the best ways to see how an author is using a word is by considering how else he used that word in context of that book itself. So what I want to do with you right now is show you the other three times that Paul uses the word diakonos in the book of Romans so you can see exactly what he's been doing with that word in just the recent chapters of this same book. First, we're going to see, how God, is, uh, see God speaking about the government in Romans 13.4. These are verses that many of you have probably heard in recent years and recent, recent months even. There are two uses of the word diakonos in this one verse. He writes, For he, speaking of the government or the emperor, he is God's servant, diakonos, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant, diakonos, of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Does this mean that our president is automatically a deacon in the church, or that our county commissioner is automatically a deacon in the church. Certainly not. What he is saying here is this person operates to carry out a role given to them by God that he defines here by guarding and protecting the weak and honoring and supporting the good. So clearly this is not a reference to the office of deacon within the church. Next, we see this word pop up in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, which says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning to the Israelites, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Yes, Jesus is the greatest servant of all time. Yes, he did make himself low to serve others like you. There is nothing that we could compare to the amount of servanthood that we see in Jesus Christ, that he went from the heaven of heavens, being worshiped by angels, to humble himself to be a servant here on earth, to make himself nothing, and then to be crucified for sinners like us. We can't compare to the servanthood of a king like that who would wash the feet of his own disciples. We cannot compare. Certainly, he is the greatest servant of all time, and that was the main point of my sermon last week. Amen. But he never once held the office of deacon within the church. This is a reference not to his position, but to his character. And it's likely that this very verse, this is what Paul is calling back to when he speak of, speaks of Phoebe in the next several verses. Remember, this is the in, toward the end of chapter 15, he speaks about her in the first verse of 16. Here, he is not speaking of her based upon her position, but just like Christ, about her character. She was a very hospitable person. Now, I feel bad for people like Phoebe. I feel bad for them because their name gets stuck in the middle of controversy. And for years and years and years, they get thrown about in the middle of these arguments, which they would never have wanted. Phoebe was an excellent help to Paul. It says that she was a patron. What is that? Well, a patron is somebody who would host, house and operate uh, basically a house unit of servants that would work for them. A patron was somebody who would buy your food, give you your clothes, give you your housing and then you would operate basically to do whatever they needed and they would help elevate you through the ranks of society. So it was better to be a servant in the house of the of the emperor than it was to be a master of a poor home yourself. And so what we see happening here is he says, she was a patron to me. Normally, patrons were men unless the man dies and left everything to the wife. That is, for example, what we see happening in Jerusalem with John Mark's mother. John Mark wrote the book of Mark. She's the one who owned the upper room where Jesus had the last supper and where the apostles were waiting for the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. She was being a patron to those people who were staying there with them. She was hosting them and providing for them. In a similar way, Paul says, there's a woman here who has done that for us, and he refers to her as serving them and by being a servant. So in short, I do not believe that either biblical argument for female deacons hold water. Now what I would like to do is I would like to take a few minutes to show you four short arguments from the text that reveal the office should be held by men. First, let's consider authority. When somebody becomes a deacon, they are not simply to continue on exactly as they have done. Rather, they are called to now operate as a deputy of the church. It is their responsibility to carry out the mission of the church by caring for the needs of the body using the resources of the congregation. Meaning, although they are not endowed with the right or responsibility to direct the church, they are called to lead others in serving. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 Prohibits women from teaching or having authority over men in church, and I would agree with the historic premise that the diaconate necessarily comes with a badge of authority to lead and to have authority, and therefore sure, therefore should fall into that category described in chapter two and For those who want to know more about that, don't worry, we are going to hit chapter two extensively once we arrive there in a few months. but we are going to go ahead and shift from that now and look more closely specifically at verse 11. So if you've got your Bibles open, please make sure you're looking at them. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 3, 11. Notice that it says that they should be husbands of one wife. That might actually be down in verse 12. Notice that there is a parallel between elders and deacons in that both groups, it says that they are selected for service and must be the husbands of one wife. This is not to demand that they must be married, Rather, it's a demand against the practice of polygamy, which means having more than one wife, which was very common in the first century. And this is once again directed to men and sets boundaries on their behavior and rejects the the notion of legal promiscuity, if we can put it that way. Thirdly, what it does not say, similarly to the previous point, you would expect the Lord if we had female deacons to say that women should also experience marital fidelity, but it does not say that a deacon must be the wife of one husband, only that a deacon must be the husband of one wife. Finally, I want to simply consider that we saw a prototype last week of what deacons should look like. People often respond to the idea of male-only deacons with certain questions. Questions like, don't you think that women would be better at caring for women in the church? And questions like, in our case, don't you think that there are women in our church who would be better at this than the men? And to both of those questions, I would answer a a resounding and gregarious, absolutely yes. Yes, I do believe that there are occasions when women would do the job better than men. And yes, there are occasions when I do think that women would be more apt to care for women. Yes, I do think that's true. Men and women are different. We think differently. We are physically different, which results sometimes in physical needs that are different. We have different emotional capacities. Yes, there are times when women should certainly be the ones carrying the balm of comfort to other women who are hurting. But consider what we heard last week. What was taking place in the first church in Jerusalem? There were women who were starving. There were women who were hungry because there was no food being distributed to them. There were women who needed help. And who did they appoint? Seven men. Don't get the image of your ma- in your mind of these being elderly women who were, who were widows. That's possibly true. But being that men in those days often married women who were 15 to 20 years younger than them, and considering that a life expectancy was between 55 and 60, it is very probable that many of these were not only women, but young women in their midst. Yet we know that in this case, they did not select any women to serve them. Well, how in the world does that operate? Were they involved in passing out food to the needy? Were women involved in that process at all? I I think so, probably. Remember that deacons, it's not their job to do all of the work. It is their job to make sure the work gets done. It is very likely that those seven men were assisted by many faithful, godly Christian women but it was only a group of men who were deputized to operate in that role of authority by the apostles. Now, I hope that that explanation was helpful. But before we close, what I want to do now is we've been talking a long time about a very controversial topic, and what I want to do now is I just want to simply leave you with two application points that I think are very important for us to walk away with. First, concerning gender roles. Our world is seeking to shape your understanding of gender and of gender roles in a variety of ways. And I want to encourage you not to buy into the lie that is being promulgated by the entertainment industry or by our government or by any other direction you're going to find in the secular world. They do not understand, nor do they desire to understand God's design. So, what do we need to do in order to understand the roles of men and women in the world? We need to go to God's Word to help us understand how God built men and women and how we are designed to complement one another perfectly, both in the family and the marriage and even in the church. Providentially, this is precisely what we are going to be discussing on Tuesday night at my home. We've been going through the book of Genesis at our home Bible study. We are now in our fourth week in chapter one, and we're going to be jumping in now, starting chapter two. So if you would like to learn more about what the Bible has to say, even about the creation of men and women, and how he designed them to complement one another, I encourage you, please bring a Bible, and let's grow together this Tuesday night, 7 p.m. at the Parsonage. Secondly, I want to encourage you in unity. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, as we are working through the process of nominating deacons, I want to urge you along with Paul's words and the Holy Spirit's inspired word to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What does that mean? Well, Paul describes this kind of walking with four categories of action. But notice all four of these categories of action spring out of one purpose, one desire. He says that we must have humility, gentleness, and patience, and that we must bear with one another. But why? We do this because, he says, we are eager to maintain unity. But notice that this unity is not maintained through some kind of social compact or self-will or earthly motivation. Our unity in action is based on the unity that we share in the Holy Spirit. We have irrefutable unity that exists because we are all tethered together to the same anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are now just six months into a church merger. And from my vantage point, it appears that there are many visible evidences of unity that are being displayed constantly as we have grown together. Two churches have become one. Praise be to God for that. We see unity constantly developing in this gathering. And I would plead with you to continue on in loving each other and listening to each other and serving one another. And it can be really easy to hear a countercultural sermon like this one And then to become immediately entrenched in a position or belief and begin throwing darts at anyone who is on the other side of an argument like this. But I ask you, let us honor the Lord Jesus Christ by pursuing a bond of peace that is ours in Christ Jesus, who alone always perfectly is correct in everything that he says and does. I want to share with you one brief note from Philippians chapter 4. There we see that there were two women. Their names are Yodia and Syntyche. Yodia and Syntyche did not get along. What was their issue? I don't actually know. Nobody actually knows. All we know is that they were fighting, and it was big enough that everybody in the entire church knew about it, and it was causing division and disunity. And what does Paul write to them? He says, I urge you, Yodia, and I encourage, and I uh, urge you, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Does this mean that they agreed on all the details of everything in their life? I do not think so. I think rather what it means is that they, he was saying, this, whatever you're arguing about, is not a cause for division between you. And I urge you, get along with one another. So I simply want to present to you today, we need to continue on in unity and in grace. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or concerns about the doctrine that I have presented to you today, I would strongly encourage you, please speak to me about that. I would be delighted to have that conversation with you. Our goal again It's to give all honor and glory to Jesus Christ and to operate in accordance with what His Word teaches us to do. So with that being said, let me close this now in a word of prayer. Our Father God, I thank You that Your Word gives us so much information to work with, that we can understand what You have called us to do. Lord, I pray that You would help us to operate according to Your Word in this way, that You would help us to live in full obedience to what Your Scripture teaches. And God, I do pray that You would help us now as a church, even through the process of this, be unified with one another and love one another. We pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.